0: Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Jim Curtin, the head coach of the Philadelphia Union. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Musa Okwanga, Becky Sauerbrunn, and Luis Omar Tapia along with many others. So check those interviews out. It would be absolutely huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. Some really nice reviews coming in lately, so I appreciate that. We'll have Jim Curtin on soon, but let's start with some talk about the soccer world and the soccer weekend with my friend Chris Whittingham of the Chelsea mic Up podcast. Chris, thanks for joining me. How are you? Yeah, good to talk. It's been a little bit. Let's, let's talk some soccer news. Yeah, I'm excited to get it going again. Really busy weekend with the international window over and club soccer getting going again. I want to start with some Americans because there's so many Americans right now playing in Europe, men's and women's. Uh, we'll get to the women a little bit later here, but Christian Pulisic getting his first start of the season for Chelsea. Tyler Adams... Uh, getting a start for Leipzig, uh, Gio Reyna getting another start for Dortmund. And and let's start with Pulisic. Obviously, you watch a lot of Chelsea games. Uh, 3-3 in this game, more defensive follies uh, from the Chelsea side, in, including Kepa, their goalkeeper. And, you know, this, this was a disappointing game for Chelsea. You got the sense that uh, they should have come away with three points, and they didn't.
1: And from a defensive point of view, there's so much to sort out there. And I think part of the whole season for Frank Lampard has been getting balance right because they've signed all these attacking players. And I thought Timo Werner finally had a breakout game. I'm really starting to enjoy watching Kai Havertz play week in, week out. But with Pulisic and with Mount Hakim Ziyech came off the bench in this one, then how do you figure out your midfield and also keep your your back four solid? I think they were always going to be uh, vulnerable, and I think they will continue to be vulnerable to teams that press. And Southampton under Ralph Hasenhudel play that very high-pressing style. Now, they did leave themselves for a couple of easy long balls in behind, which Timo Werner took advantage of, but eventually they wore down what, for me, from a back-forward standpoint, is just not a good distribution back four. Never mind the lack of confidence in Keppa. It's really only Ben Chilwell that passes out well. So uh, I think, ultimately, Frank Lampard's got a long-term Project on his hands in terms of figuring out the balance of this team. You sign so many players, and you don't have the training sessions to really figure it out because you're playing so many games. Never mind international. So I think he's got a really difficult job on his hands. And right now, the biggest issue is in 43 Premier League games that he's managed, they've conceded 63
0: times. <sighs> and you know, this game was was interesting from Polisic's perspective. Great to see him start. You'd like to see him get some consistency uh, and be healthy for a long stretch here. For me. I like him better coming in off the left wing than on the right wing. And they had him on the right for most of this game. Uh, had Mason Mount out wide left. I like having Timo Werner as a center forward. But yes. like, would you prefer to see Pulisic on the other side?
1: I would. And I've we, we've kind of been interested in what would Pulisic plus Chilwell look like. Because Ben Chilwell, as a left back, has given a ton of freedom to bomb forward. So I think in those moments when Chilwell gets forward, Pulisic is kind of given the freedom to move central. I actually think because you have one really attacking fullback in Chilwell and the other not so much in Espiliqueta, that you'd have... Uh, Pulisic maybe played down the right to kind of be the sole attacking force on that right-hand side. But I agree. I just think he looks more comfortable coming off the left. And I think if you're choosing between Christian Pulisic, who's been so good off the left, and Mason Mount, who really can play anywhere, he can play as the 10, can play right, left, a bit further back in the middle, like because Mason Mount's whole calling card is versatility, why aren't you accommodating a player who you yourself have admitted is, has been your best player at times. And at times carries your most threat. So I agree. I want to see Pulisic uh, coming off that left-hand side. And I think we'll get plenty of chances to, uh, as they play so many games here, it's what, six games in three weeks here uh, between Premier League and Champions League. I think we'll see that again, but I I don't think you saw Pulisic be his brightest self. He had some good moments, but his brightest self playing off that right.
0: Yeah. In terms of Tyler Adams and Gio Reyna, I think it was important not so much from an individual perspective for them this weekend, but from a team perspective that their teams, Leipzig and Dortmund got wins away in the Bundesliga, which they hadn't done in the first round of of away games that they had. And if they want to have any chance of contending for the Bundesliga title with Bayern Munich, you really do feel like Leipzig and Dortmund need to get wins on the road
1: and it was funny because in match day two i joked uh, with some of my friends after Leipzig drew against Leverkusen and Dortmund lost to Wade Augsburg I joke with my friends title race over but then Bayern <laughs> when it lost to Hoffenheim 4-1 it's like okay maybe maybe there is still a hope yet that this can be a, a close title race but I agree I mean Dortmund at times have not looked their best attacking self this season it's eight goals from four games which is a decent return but we know what it's like when that team is really hitting the heights particularly with Holland up top and Reyna combining you know with him and that, that relationship seems to be budding so I still want to see a little bit more from Reina in terms of you know really leading an attack that looks like Borussia Dortmund at its very best, but Leipzig have put together a, a run of really solid results here. I don't think it's been anything spectacular, but uh, I think with Adams in the middle, you see a bit more defensive solidity. They've only given away two goals in four games, and we know that. Tyler Adams, for me, can be, uh, this, this might sound hyperbolic, but an N'Golo Kante level defensive midfielder in terms Hello. of putting fires out, in terms of covering all that ground in the middle. I, I don't mean to put such huge expectations on the young man. Man, but I, I really do feel, though, I think he can be that good in, in slowing things down and breaking up counters. But I think you're seeing that defensive solidity with him in the middle.
0: My other favorite thing is that Gio Rena actually used the term bromance to describe his <laughs> relationship with Erling Holland. And, and so <laughs> they do seem to connect well with each other. So I was amused by that. Um, I also want to talk about VAR taking away Liverpool's late winner at Everton. And I... You know, this is one of those situations where Mane may have been offside by like a micron or two. Um, Jordan Henderson's goal gets disallowed, ends up uh, 2-2 in this game. Was this deserved in your opinion or not? And, and what do you want to do about... VAR ruling on offside when it's just such a, a a tiny little margin on it.
1: Well, the Premier League is not the only league that uses this technology. So we've seen this technology used, and my feeling has always been, as long as the technology is universally applied, then I'm fine with it. I remember the first time they unveiled it, I think it was the first Premier League game of last season, Raheem Sterling scored a goal for for Man City, and they did the little, they draw the line, so it's like, wait a second, when did that happen? They didn't tell anybody they were going to do this, but... That technology is being universally applied. So, while where they draw the line from is controversial, like I think in some respects, at the very least, we're getting a universal a universal application of the law, which is by the way all anyone ever wanted. So I'm actually okay with the micron technology. I know it feels so unsatisfying because let's be real, Mane didn't gain an advantage from being a length of a shirt ahead of the last defender, Yerimina. He was going to score right. that goal whether Mina was there or not, or Liverpool were going to score that goal whether he was in that position or not, which kind of feels like the point, right? And, and I think that's where you get the two competing camps. It's do we want the law universally applied or do we want some subjectivity? But anytime there's subjectivity, people get mad about it. And so this is kind of what we've created for ourselves. And in my opinion, the technology is being universally applied.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm changing my viewpoint at different times. You could say maybe charitably it's evolving. I've come to the feeling that I wouldn't have an issue if VAR was not used on offside calls or on those moments when goalkeepers come 2 inches off the line on penalties and and I would be okay leaving that to human judgment by the AR or the referee but at that if you're going to be okay with that you're you're going to have to be okay with mistakes happening yes And I'm saying, I think I'd be, I I would actually slightly prefer that situation at this point because the human judgment would not have called Mane offside. And I think that would have been the preferred call. Uh, And and, and, and nobody from Everton would have freaked out in real time from a human perspective if that had stood, I don't think.
1: That's always been my feeling about these offside decisions is, it's so bizarre to me when there's not not even a player appealing for offside, right. and then all of a sudden we go back and look at it. So I generally agree with you, right? Like My hope would be that we can come to some mutual understanding of the game. The thing is, though, is that you see on social media all the time, right, where let's say there's a big decision, there's a penalty given, and you go to your social media feed. You will see even if like, people mostly agree that it was a penalty, you will find the one or two dissenting opinions never a penalty for me. And I think because most people don't have a mutual understanding of the game, even if there's a majority consensus, because there isn't a 100% understanding, anytime you involve subjectivity, they are going to be people that argue the other side, never mind the passion of fandom, never mind how the managers and the players themselves are constantly putting pressure in the press. Like, it's really hard to achieve this level of subjective objectivity. And so I understand why the lawmakers and the VAR deciders are trying to pursue some standard of objectivity because that's the only way that they can do this. So um, I'm I'm okay with the offside thing, again, as long as it's universally applied, but I understand the feeling, which is you want to see goals scored. And if you're taking goals off the board for fractions of shirts, then this kind of defeats the whole point of why we enjoy this.
0: Yeah. And the hardest thing in the game is scoring goals. And so anything that helps an attacker score a goal Within reason, I kind of prefer. Yeah. And, and and I would also say, I mean, like, I mean, you look at <sighs> clear and obvious, which is, that's the phrase that I think people get confused by this because they think that it applies to everything currently reviewed by BAR, but that is not the case. Clear and obvious does not apply to offside and whether your the goalkeeper's foot is one inch off the line. That is viewed as purely objective and so this clear and obvious notion doesn't apply to that according to how the game is refereed but i think it gets at this is what we actually want var for is for the clear and obvious things and for the things that are not clear and obvious that we should probably let those be human decided that's that's my feeling at this point
1: And those big errors are really what people want out, right? The goal line technology comes in because Frank Lampard scored an obvious goal against Germany at the World Cup. That didn't count, even though it went over the line. It's like, all right, we need to fix this. Uh, Thierry Henry's handball against Ireland in in, in World Cup qualifiers was a clear and obvious error, right? There are things that we can consider clear and obvious errors that you remember, right? Whereas this is not what it was for. It was not meant to clean up the shoulder length that Saudi Mane was offside. This is an unintended consequence of right. this standard. And so I get why people you know, want to go back to what they were in, what they were introduced to, right? They're introduced to clear and obvious error is what VAR is for. And now all of a sudden it's for this totally other thing and people don't like it as much. So I get that sense of, you just want injustices out of the game, right? That, right. That's all we want, injustices out. And actually this application of the technology feels more like an injustice than some <laughs> other injustices that happen.
0: And that's why no one has really any issue with goal line technology, you know? I mean, because it's like, that is the, the most important thing in the game was a goal scored or not. And we have a way of measuring that unless it's Sheffield United against Aston Villa. Villa. Um, (laughs) Moving on, there was something else that came out of this Everton Liverpool game that has a huge impact potentially on the premier league season. Virgil van Dyke needs ACL surgery. And he's going to be out a while. We don't know exactly how long, if it's going to be the entire season, if it's going to be less than that. But this is a player who is one of the most influential players in world soccer. And he's going to be out for a long time now. What do you think the impact will be on the title race?
1: Massive, because I think he's the only player in the Liverpool team that we can now say, in retrospect, makes a huge difference on their individual. Because we've seen... At various times, the key because people always bring up the conversation, what, what would happen if Alisson got hurt? What would happen if Alexander Arnold got hurt, or Mane, or Salah? And it seems like every time someone gets hurt, Liverpool do find an answer. But I think this is the one player that is actually indispensable in this team, that over the last two years has actually made them so solid that they can win the Premier League, they can win the Champions League. They couldn't do these things unless they had Virgil van Dijk, and I just think the drop-off in not just, you know, in because in, they have Joe Matip and Joe Gomez. They have enough in center back to be, That'd be a yeah. good... Right, exactly. To, to be a good Champions League quality defense. But Van Dijk takes them to another level. Takes them to impenetrable. Takes them to... Like, he just has a singular force where... Uh, opposing attackers are afraid to go near him or play a through ball in his direction or play a cross in his area because he's going to deal with it. Once you lose that fear factor, we've already started to see teams lose their fear factor against Liverpool with Van Dijk in the team. Now... Now teams are really going to go and attack them. And this is already a team that, you know, as of the th- this recording has given up more goals than any team in the Premier League. So, I mean, like they're going to have defensive issues if they continue to play a high line. It's going to look at times a bit more like what Jurgen Klopp's previous teams looked like, where they were occasionally defensively vulnerable because they don't have Van Dijk and for the moment, they still don't have Allison.
0: I'm also just bummed out because Van Dijk, everything I've seen from him is classy mm-hmm. and just, you know... How much of an impact he has on a game, how he carries himself, that bums me out that he's going to be gone for this season. I do think that we're seeing several factors potentially in it being maybe a more wide open race for the title this season, certainly than it was last year when Liverpool won by so much.
1: And my feeling was that Liverpool were going to win this title if Van Dijk was healthy, that they had that kind of that race locked up with Van Dyke, and that they were going to run away with it. Even after this result, like I was feeling, look, Liverpool are still going to win this. Man City, even though they beat Arsenal, weren't great. Arsenal themselves right. like, are, are inconsistent. Spurs today, they look like they might mount a, a, a title challenge. Then from 3-0 up, they concede three goals to that <laughs> West Ham. But th- there isn't, I mean, Man United, you know, we're late 1-1 with Newcastle. There isn't, I think this is a wide open title race with Van Dyke out now. And that's not what we were expecting. We were talking about injustices earlier. For me, the one injustice is that number one, Jordan Pickford didn't get a red card for that tackle on VAR. Right. Why they didn't look at it, it was beyond me. But number two, that a tackle, a really bad one, is the reason why this title race is wide open. I don't like that. I, I'm not a huge Liverpool fan, but I, I don't want to see their title campaign affected in this way by such a poor If it just happens naturally, injuries can happen. But a horror tackle from Jordan Pickford going in to try and win a ball is not the way that I think the title race should be decided.
0: Yeah, I, I don't like the way that that play happened, and, and- the implications of what happened for a lot of reasons. But then again, we're also seeing some some pretty horrible responses to Jordan Pickford on social media right now, which I think is taking things way too far. And that's how tribal things happen, I guess. But yeah, just uh just a bummer all around uh, with that whole exchange. And I, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I don't want to talk too much about negativity, but one thing that stood out from a fairly unremarkable game, this city one Arsenal nail game, which was just dis- a disappointing game for neutrals. Sergio Aguero ends up having contact, physical contact that he initiates after getting angry with the AR. She Massey Ellis, who is one of the few women working in the premier league as an official. She's been doing it for a while. She's very good at what she does. And we saw Aguero be upset with a call she had made and then touch her and put his hand on her shoulder and, and rub his hand on her back uh, as he was starting to move in the other direction. And you see her arm, her left arm push out kind of is like basically get off me. Yeah. And I don't know why there's any debate about this. Like this is something that you shouldn't be in his position In that context, uh, touching an official of any gender, and then it's even worse because uh, there's some some power imbalances here, and so many women in so many lines of work have run into guys who've done this type of stuff over the years. And I'm curious to know what your thoughts are about that, and if you think he should be punished.
1: Well, when I was watching it, I just had a visceral reaction, which was, don't like that. Like where, like, where did yeah. that come from? And you just immediately tell, like, oh, hang on. And I actually thought, you know, all credit uh, to to, to see on Massey Ellis for the way in which she handled it. And, like, did, like, a little bit of a swat aside, but it wasn't right. quite, like, you know, full-on, like, get off me. Because that, that could have, like, she could have really made that a problem and, and decided to kind of yeah, try and neutralize the situation. But it just feels, and, and this is something that, you know, is much bigger than just this one incident. It just feels like Sergio Aguero is a little too comfortable doing that. Right? right. And that you can tell that maybe he's, he's like he would do that when trying to chat up a woman at a bar. Right. Like 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 do that in a in a flirtatious kind of way. And that is totally unprofessional. Right. And this is ultimately everyone's work environment. And I think that has been the major talking point as a result of all the things that have happened with me, too, is in a professional environment and even in a non-professional environment, you have to, you know, act in a certain way. You have to be cordial and you have to treat women with respect. And it just felt Disrespectful. I'm not going to sit here and say that Sergio Guerrero hates women or is an awful misogynist, but right. I, I do think that there's there's something that went off there where he felt comfortable doing that in his head because she was a woman. And so I, I think that's all. And I don't even think he should even really be that shamed over it. It's just something that you're, you're being asked to consider, right? Consider why you did this. That ultimately is, is a huge part of the Me Too movement. It's just why do you do this? Think right. about your motivations and why you do this,
0: and why it would probably be better if you didn't. Yeah, I mean, what I would like to see—I don't want to see him like banished or something mm-hmm. uh, because of this. But I, I would like to see the Premier League say say something publicly that this type of contact, contact can't happen in the future, mm-hmm. and and here's why: because I, I do think it's important. To do something. And I think Pep Guardiola didn't get it afterward because he was saying, uh, you know, he's like, Sergio's like the nicest guy ever. But like that has, he may be, but that has nothing to do with an incident of inappropriate behavior. And I hope they, I hope the league says something about it. And
1: you do kind of see the imbalance there in somebody like Pep Guardiola, who just doesn't even think about, you know, gender issues when he's thinking about giving a press conference about his team. Like the imbalance there is, I'm only thinking about this siege mentality where I've got to, you know, back my player because you right. know, don't, don't, don't make something out of nothing because that then, then, then you're, you're kind of seeing like you're, you're adding to the fire here. Like, these are probably the wrong people to have this conversation with. Like, you need to sit Pep Guardiola down in a room where he's actually thinking about these issues and not after a game because we just know how maniacally focused he is on football. So I I do think that there has been a general failing on the public statements that have come after this, but I don't think these are necessarily bad people that wouldn't be understanding of a conversation about Like, let's have a conversation and realize why this isn't okay. Like, I think these people would all listen. Um, I just think that, again... The biggest issue is instinctual behavior, right? Sergio Aguero instinctively thought it was okay to do this. And that ultimately is the unwiring that a lot of people have to do.
0: Moving on, there's a phrase called the FIFA flu, which over the years has <laughs> been used to describe how top teams often, it seems like, don't perform as well in their first game after a FIFA international window. And, and anecdotally, it kind of makes sense, right? If you're asking the the top teams who tend to have more players on national teams fly from Europe to South America and back or North America or wherever, and then come back and immediately play a club game that often they're not at their very best. And this weekend, at least we saw these teams lose Real Madrid, Barcelona, Sevilla, Atalanta, Inter, Lazio, all lost, all champions league teams. We also saw these teams tie Liverpool, Chelsea, Juventus, Borussia, uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach, all Champions League group stage teams from top leagues. And I do wish somebody would do a scientific study. It wouldn't even be that hard to find out if it is statistically significant that Champions League teams play worse in their first game after a FIFA window.
1: I'd also love as well to see, you know, everyone's wearing those tracking devices, like what the level of exertion is in <laughs> in games after International Windows versus before. I mean, just because of the sheer amount of travel, never mind. I mean, we're in an environment right now where the quarantine process and the, the way in which, like, Generally, players are being asked to be responsible, go and travel, live in a hotel, go play the game, come back to the hotel, fly to the next hotel, stay in that hotel, play the game. And then they did it three times in this window. The, the exertion, the trying to you know get training sessions with new teammates and, and everything. There's just such a pressure being put on all these players right now. And I think this is only going to get worse because the calendar is tightened through... The end of the Euros, next summer, there is no break on offer for any of these players. The break was just the four weeks we had in between uh, the end of the Champions League and the start of the European club season again, maybe even less than a month later. There is no rest for the weary that's coming here. I think this problem is only going to compound. For me, the only way that players are going to get rest is if they get hurt. Right, and and that ultimately is is not the outcome that a lot of people desire. But there is you're going to be playing every three days, basically, until the end of January for for Premier League players in some cases, until you know you you can get a respite. I mean, I understand everyone's got to feed at the trough. Football is so massive; the calendar has to be tight for this reason. But. It is
0: unkind to the players to make them exert this much. It is, and it's not normal. And I put out a couple of tweets just about how many games Erling Haaland and Lionel Messi were going to have to play between September and the end of December. And it's a crazy number of games. And then you've got Messi being asked to do two round trips to South America for World Cup qualifying during Fungers. that time. And I was glad to see Erling Haaland not start... Dortmund's game over the weekend he came on as a substitute and actually had a role in the goal but or in the first goal but it's 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 a situation that I I think you're going to need to see some load management as they would say in the NBA for the top players who end up having to play all these club games and Champions League you know the Champions League starting this week is six match weeks out of the next eight weeks. And the other two weeks in that stretch are international dates. So if you're playing like Erling Holland and Lionel Messi for your club team and your national team, you get no breaks. And so it's going to be up to club coaches and and, and clubs themselves to do some load management.
1: And I think as well, I don't think there's the same risk. I understand that every manager wants to win every game, but every big club in the world is experiencing this. And so in England, if you're in a title race, not to say that you can forego results, but you can rotate three or four players game over game because everyone else around you is going to be dropping results too. Can you foresee a scenario in this season in which one a, a Premier League team is going to win five games in a row? Though Aston Villa right now is the, is the <laughs> one that's closest to it. But like one of these top Premier League teams is going to win five games in a row. It's like near on impossible given the number of games that they're playing. So I do think that rotation has been an underutilized tool in my opinion. Three or four changes in every game just to make sure that these guys don't have shortened careers. Like y- you've talked before about how the German World Cup winning team of 2014 was burnt out by the time they got to their 30s. And I think this is going to start to happen more as guys are playing every three days for club and country you're going to see wear out. You're going to see guys that their, their careers crash and burn early. And that's not what we want. We want to see the best players living on and having these long careers that, that we celebrate them well into their 30s. I, I think we're heading to, for a dangerous place here and not one that I think is going to lead to the product being better.
0: Correct. And the only other thing I would add on this is that when you look at the schedule for January, there's no winter break this time. Now, we talk about how the Premier League never has one, okay. But usually they have one in Germany. They're not having much of one at all. They're not having much of a break at all in Spain uh, either. And so I I think this is just going to be asking a lot of players. And you wonder if there is, you know, stronger player unions in soccer like there are in the NBA and the NFL and MLB. How might this be different? Because there really aren't any strong players unions in the soccer world Uh, which you could do a whole podcast on that topic. Maybe we will someday. Uh, Let's move on. Milan beats Inter in the Milan derby. Milan stays perfect in Serie A. Zlatan Ibrahimović, two goals at age 39. And the question is, can Milan contend for the title?
1: Well, based off their run of results, basically since COVID happened, of course they can. They haven't lost. They haven't lost since since March in the league. Uh, it's three draws. I'm just counting up because I looked at 13 wins and three draws in Serie A since they last lost a game. So for me, I think that they can, that, you know, there was a thought for a while they're going to bring in Ralph Ranić instead. Uh, they stick with the manager that they had. The one concern that I have is it's a little Zlatan heavy. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, Zlatan, as great as he is, he came back from coronavirus and had two goals, right? Like... It's not entirely surprising, but a 38-year-old player. It's a little bit much to say over 38 games that you can rely on this player to continue to succeed at the highest level. So I'm not saying that they're reliant upon Zlatan solely, but when he's giving you huge contributions, it it does set off alarm bells a little bit. What if this falls off ever so slightly?
0: Agreed. I'm also one of these guys that thinks the sport is in a better place when AC Milan is good. And they haven't been really good for a long time. And so to see this team playing so well now, as you point out over a stretch of months, not just since the start of this season, you know, they've been terrific for a while now and be relevant is I think good for the sport. And, you know, we'll see if they can keep it up, but Stefano Pioli, you know, terrific job. I'm glad he kept the job and, and we'll see what they can do here. This is also a really disappointing loss for inter which has spent a lot of money, has title aspirations, and they lose in what technically is a home game. And I think it was like four years it's been since, almost five, since Milan had beaten Inter in a league game. And
1: Inter, you mentioned the money that they've spent. And just in general the complaining from Antonio Conte about not being supported well enough and wanting veterans and all this thing. And then uh, they, you know, before the international break, they drew one, one with Lazio had a player sent off. And then in this game, uh, losing to Milan and your, and your big matches that are going to decide the title. You know, I, I think there's an opportunity for a club like Inter to win the league this year, given Juventus in a transition period under a manager that, and Andrea Pirlo who wants to bring through some young players. I was looking through their lineup from this weekend and, They're playing like three, you know, 23 and under players, like players you've never heard of before in that start. Like Juve is there for the taking, which is why I think Milan absolutely has a chance to go and do it. But uh, you're you're right. I think Inter is a bit of a surprise that they haven't been able to hit the ground running, given that in this COVID environment, they went and signed Ashraf Hakimi, a player who, you know, a lot of clubs would have been in for and a lot of clubs would have wanted to spend the money to bring him in. Like Antonio Conte has been supported as much as he wants to complain that he hasn't been.
0: I'm curious to see if we end up getting a trend here, because we're we're seeing... Something common in Italy, just having this discussion, and in England earlier, that it might be a a more wide open title race this season. Now we haven't seen enough yet in Germany or Spain to, or or France might have a possibility. We'll see, Mm -hmm. Um, but not in Germany or or Spain to see if that's possible, but maybe there's certain factors combining here that we might actually get real title races.
1: Well, and look, it's Match Day 7 and PSG are on top of the league. So, you know, it's not the alarm bells. But I mean, everyone thinks that if they came back very quickly after getting to the Champions League final. They lost their first two games. They've won all five since. I think PSG are going to comfortably uh, win League going I think... La Liga is an interesting one because, you know, Real Madrid and Barca both lost this weekend. We know that Barca doesn't really have that strength. So can that next club... But that next club, you figure, would have been Sevilla. And they've also dropped a couple of results early. Actually, you know, after uh, match day uh, six, although, I mean, there's there's such an imbalance in games played. It's actually Real Sociedad who topped the table. So (laughs) I, I think... La Liga is, I think Real are probably going to comfortably run away with that one just because I think they're the team with the with the the, the strongest and most consistent level of performance. But I mean, it's possible. I think you, you, we talked about that fixture congestion earlier, Champions League involved for Real Madrid. So I, I do think that really France probably is the only one where I'd say definitely PSG are going to win it. I'd say every other league you know, at least have a competition through the end, even if it's through the same usual customers.
0: We talked earlier about U.S. men's national team players and their club weekends in Europe. Let's talk about U.S. women's national team players. I've really enjoyed watching WSL games from England this season, in part because they're available in a way that they haven't been before with NBC getting involved, and I've enjoyed that, and also because we've got more top U.S. women's national team players uh, in the WSL. On Sunday, goals scored by Sam Mewis for Man City and First goals for Manchester United for both Christian Press and Tobin Heath. Man United won. Man City tied against Reading, and I'm wondering what you think about these three players in particular. But you also have Rose Lavelle who got her first start at Man City. Didn't have a huge impact on that game, and I, it's nice to see these U.S. players playing. But is Man City worse than expected because they've been dropping points at a, at a fairly regular clip? Man United. Is not necessarily a contender to win in the league, but they they're trying to be relevant and they've signed some good U.S. players. What are your thoughts on all this?
1: Well, the interesting thing to me the most is Man City because you would think Man City, a team that you know were top of the league when COVID hit the you know hit hit the FA Women's Super League and only lost the league on a points per game algorithm, was going to be right back up there again. Then you add a couple of Americans and Rose Lavelle and Sam it's like all right. This is a title contender, but I thought actually in their game against Chelsea, they were played off the park a little bit. Now, today mm-hmm. they drew 1-1 with Reading, uh, which, I mean, you look at the numbers in that game, 67% possession, 26 shots to three. I mean, it was, you know, a typical game in which a minnow hangs on for a point. But still, I mean, Man City, you can't really afford to drop results like this when Arsenal are flying at the top of the league. Right. They've won all five games. Uh, they've, you know, their goal difference is plus 25 through five games. I mean, th- it's a very high standard to win that league just because the top teams don't don't normally lose to the worst teams now you have seen a couple of these you know so-called you know lesser teams you know doing well and, and pulling off some good results including ready against man city but i'm just a bit surprised that man city have been able to go off to a good start and one of the things that I, I think is a bit underrated in that is they lost their manager from last year to nycfc nick cushing who was the manager of man city last year left mid-season to join the nycfc coaching staff under ronnie dyla i wonder if that's played a role and maybe under a new coach they're not quite hitting the same heights
0: yeah i mean like city also got lucy bronze i mean like yeah. It, you know, they've they've got players and so I'm, I'm i am surprised that they're not doing better you know it's a it's a fairly long season so we'll see how things play out in terms of alex morgan it's it's an interesting one she did not play was not available for this derby game against arsenal and i think you have to start any alex morgan discussion by saying she gave birth not that long ago you mm-hmm. know and and her her Baby Charlie is is with her over there. Um, But she said that there was some sort of additional new injury type thing that kept her from being available for this game. It's just a bit of a bummer not to to see her play, but Spurs is pretty bad.
1: Yeah, (laughs) and I think they were kind of hoping that Alex Morgan would come in and solve some of their problems, but uh, they've got a long way to go as a club. It's not just going to take Alex Morgan. And the other thing that's a bummer too is, By the time she gets on the field, if it is a couple of weeks that she's out, the loan spell is only until I believe the end of December, and so it's not—it's only going to be what five or six games that she'll end up playing, and that won't have the same impact. I mean, they put her face like up, you know, and I think it was like Piccadilly Circus. I think like they were like they were trying to you know market. Alex Morgan I heard I on Chelsea mic'd up we had Emma Hayes the women's team manager and she was like we love Alex Morgan coming in she has more Instagram followers than Tottenham Hotspur like <laughs> like like she is a huge figure and I was really hoping to see her but as you said you're coming off of you know giving birth I mean you you'll be awarded some some extra time to get fit and be ready to go to play high level sports
0: we got one more topic here I want to talk a little MLS we're recording this on Sunday before most of the MLS games on Sunday night. So we're not going to get into specific game discussion, but there's one thing I want to talk about, which is the MLS supporters shield will not be awarded this year. The independent supporters council announced not far from the end of the season (laughs) that, that because of the, all the things that have happened due to COVID because it's a totally unbalanced schedule because they said fans hadn't been allowed in the stadiums, which was interesting to me that they had decided their board not to award the supporters shield for this year. And I want to know what your thoughts are, but I'm going to say what mine are first here, which are, I don't like this. I think this is a situation where players have, and coaches and, and teams have put themselves at risk health wise to, to play this season and to get games in. And there's never a balanced schedule in, in a, in a MLS season that is normal, you know? And, and so I understand that you've got, some teams have played very few games at home. Some have played more. Uh, The opposition has been easier for some teams than others, but I'm still totally okay with awarding the supporters shield. And And rewarding a team like Toronto or as Jim Curtin will talk in a few minutes here during our interview, like Philadelphia, which has a chance to win it like that was a motivating thing for him and his team. And I'm sure he's not thrilled that this isn't going to be awarded. So do you, do you feel similarly or do you feel differently? The only thing that I don't like about
1: what's happened is I, I saw Greg Vanny uh, gave a quote and Taylor Twelman tweeted it out that basically really had a go at the fans. Alejandro Bedoya agreed and also kind of had a go at, you know, who knows about this supporters' council. And look, the supporters' council decided to put together a supporter's shield to begin with because the regular season title wasn't being awarded by Major League Soccer. So they decided on their own to do this. And the one thing that you don't like is a council like this that doesn't necessarily have huge notoriety on a place like social media, you know, is kind of making a unilateral decision for all supporters. So, for me, i, I th- th- that's the only thing I don't like is that this, you know, council made this decision on behalf of all supporters. but also, let's be real. The supporter shield is not what it is even in previous years, right? Like it is not a thirty four game regular season where everyone's playing at least a some on a somewhat similar playing field. There are no supporters, which by the way, is no small thing. like I do think even as a token of, recognizing the fact that this was different on behalf of their not being supporters that the game is different without their being supporters. I think that's actually a sentiment that's worth honoring in some way because they are the lifeblood of the game and, and this is different without supporters. So I'm a bit on, un- I don't mean to both sides of this, but I, I get both sides, which is that the coaches and the players are making enormous sacrifice and to have anything that they achieve in this season denigrated in any way, they will take it personally, but also from a supporter's point of view, I do also think that you can take a decision like this and say it's not the same without the fans, and so we're not, as some body of the fans, not going to honor this with what we, you know, are generally supportive of down the years.
0: Well, thank you very much. That was a good discussion. Good to talk soccer again with you, Chris. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Jim Curtin. (laughs) Our guest now is Jim Curtin, the head coach of the Philadelphia Union, which has the second-best record in MLS and just qualified for the playoffs. Jim, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Grant. Yeah, really fired up to talk to you. Lots happening with this team on and off the field right now. You know, it's it's something where you want to say congratulations for what your team has been doing, and you've been doing it while developing impressive young talent. Uh, You just announced on Friday that 19-year-old attacking midfielder Brendan Aronson has been sold to Champions League club Salzburg with a move in January for $6 million with potential add-on millions uh, and a a percentage of any future sale. What stands out to you about how your club developed Brendan Aronson in particular to get him to this point?
2: Yeah, it's a... It's been a long process, and yesterday was certainly a a monumental day, uh, a real proof of concept for the club. Um, You know, I I started my coaching career in the youth academy, so it is something that is very close to me. Um, You know, worked specifically with Brendan uh, when he was an eight, nine-year-old, and and have seen his kind of growth and development. Um, Richie Graham is a name that um, maybe lays below the radar a lot of times, but. Um, for me has, has been um, a guy that um, had in his mind that this idea that we could develop young American talent in this country and, and our ownership group and Jay Sugarman and, and Richard Leibovich also were on board with the idea that you know look at a time 10 years ago you think of MLS the 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 model uh, and everybody was going in the direction of sign older you know superstars the big big names the big sexy names that'll sell jerseys and sell out uh, stadiums um, and we went in an opposite direction and they made a real commitment to youth development um, and that process, you know Had highs and it had lows and we, and we went through some um, Some difficult moments, but also we stuck to our plan. Um, so again at the club. We have three pillars um, Number one is that we want to build from within so that includes Academy players that includes our staff We promote Academy players to become or Academy coaches to, to move up to the first team uh, the second one uh, is that we believe all 11 players playing cohesively can beat any group of superstars. Um, that's that's a big one for us. And then the third is innovation. We have to do it in a unique way. Uh, we have to out scout. We have to find um, players in the second and third division in, in Germany that we can maybe fit our system and, and develop. Um, we're innovative in, in that, you know, the way we track running and, and data uh, and, and we do video and, and film um, is a little bit more unique than others. So. All those three pillars are stuff are things that we we kind of always check ourselves and, and are we doing it even when we're winning uh, or losing? Uh, we always review those those three. Um, but it starts again um, with that vision of, of Richie Graham and, and our ownership, uh, Jay Sugarman, to to really believe that this could be done. Because a lot of people say they want to develop, but then the second it gets hard, everybody's out the door in pro sports. So um, we really stuck to the plan and. Uh, sorry for the long-winded answer, but that, that that brings you to Brendan Aronson and to watch him grow in the qualities that he has. Uh, he's ready to go to Europe, which is a, a big first step for our club. And he won't be the last because there's a lot of strong players in the pipeline coming through.
0: Yeah, I mean, clearly Mark McKenzie is another young rising star who has drawn interest from significant clubs in Europe. How do you guys as a club try to go about balancing this strategy of developing and selling young players while also putting yourself in contention to win trophies as you are lately?
2: Grant, that's that's a great question. And, and it's the biggest thing I can say, too, is we talk about development a lot here at the union, but winning still comes first. You know, we are a professional club. And, and guess what? People aren't watching Brendan Aronson if we don't play the way we played down in Orlando. Uh, and, and it put so many eyeballs on, on the screen. Um, Mark McKenzie uh, isn't being scouted by top teams in Europe right now, if, if our team isn't towards the top of the table. So we recognize that winning part is essential. And look, young players develop better <laughs> when they're learning how to win as well. You know, that's a big piece of development. So all these young players have stepped in for us and contributed in big ways. And it's important to, to mention that, yes, they're young, uh, but they're, they're starting for a team that is, like you said, second place in this league and, and pushing and fighting for a supporter shield. Um, the cool thing about MLS right now is there's a million different ways to build a roster. There's a million different styles of play now in, in coaching uh, and great coaches. Sometimes I have to pinch myself when in back-to-back weeks you go, you know, Yop, Stam, Thierry Henry, and now Bruce Serena, and you kind of go, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. You know, so many different uh, amazing minds and ways of seeing the game. Um, so how you assemble your team um, can be... One of a million different ways, uh, I think ours is unique to Philadelphia, it's unique to how we want to stick to our, our, our principles and our pillars of play, um, but um, it's a fun way, you know, I, I've really enjoyed it and we've kind of embraced uh, it together as a club and, and our culture's kind of grown and improved over the years, um, but it took time and it took a lot of people working very hard uh, and staying focused. So. Not an easy process, but one that now you're starting to see uh, the rewards of. And, and again, like you said, Mark McKenzie is coming. I mean, he is, for me, he's been, between him and Mensa probably the two best defenders uh, this year. And, and for a 20-year-old, uh, that's, that's speaking volumes.
0: And now he's scoring you know, one of the best goals of the year in the league, which kind of came out of nowhere the other night from distance, uh, to get you a point. Um, Everyone has had, obviously, a ton of challenges in 2020. How would you look at your team's season so far? And what has gone right in terms of of rising to number two in the league right now?
2: Yeah, it's been the most unique um, year, I think, soccer even aside, uh, of my life, of my 40 years. So I I know we're all going through uh, different things with family and and just new challenges of of working from home, of of school for kids. It's just been... Um, a lot of stress for a lot of people. Um, so, in a lot of ways, the the mentality of your group, whatever your group is, if if it's a you know a company that you work for, uh, the a sports team, like our our case, uh, whatever that might be, keeping families together and, and, and tight and going the right direction, whatever it might be. Um, there's been so much adversity this year. I feel like we've had four or five starts to the season, let alone you know uh, you know uh, thinking about a 34 game block. Um, you know, it's, it's been a challenge, but our guys have had a really good mindset and mentality and that part of things um, has, has really pushed us further. So I think that, you know, there could have been the mindset of uh, we're going to a bubble, there's no fans. You could make a million different excuses, but our group um, has really stuck together uh, and, and flipped it and seen this as an opportunity. Yes, uh, it, it is easier to now uh, play against Toronto and you don't have to go into Toronto Stadium, you know, and, 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 and have the noise and... Uh, you know, there's, there's teams that have maybe slipped up a little bit this year. And, and we're trying to um, win our first trophy. Uh, and, and we see, through all the challenges, a unique window of opportunity uh, to make the most of, of what is a, a very difficult season and a difficult time uh, in, our, in our world, really.
0: You've gotten to the point now where even Montreal coach Thierry Henry, who you mentioned a second ago, is saying publicly, look at the Philadelphia Union and how they're taking this long-term approach developing talent giving the coaching staff time to build what was your thought when you saw that quote it's flattering it really is
2: uh, again you know to get to even speak to him you know before a, kick- a kickoff and, and pick his, his brain about uh, about soccer is, is surreal to be honest um, he, he is so intelligent uh, he's doing a great job with Montreal a team that's been very unlucky uh, in a lot of games this year um, they play the right way, uh, but yeah, just to have that opportunity and get a compliment like that is something that's, that's special. Um, and it, it gives, uh, I think, our entire group uh, and our, our club uh, confidence, which is, is important. You know, I, I think the Vancouver uh, new GM uh, also mentioned, you know, trying to build like the Philadelphia Union, and you're kind of going, all right, uh, it, it, it takes some time. But you know, it, it's really flattering to hear that uh, again to get the the compliment uh, of your peers uh, is is something that is is really special for sure.
0: And one thing, I don't know if our listeners are aware, I learned when Henri played here in New York is that yes, he's a huge name, but he also watches everything in this league. I remember talking to him about watching like random CONCACAF Champions League Games involving Central American teams, like yeah. and I was like, dude, I hope you like have a a, a life outside of this. But like, yeah. he's saying that from someone who's like seen everything that's happening in the league, which is impressive. It's, it's um, incredible.
2: And Thierry Thierry literally he believes in the American player and the Canadian player as much as anybody, and he, he genuinely wants uh, the U.S. to have success and grow to um, you know uh, an example of of what he has in France with his national team, and he's seen it at the highest level. So. Um, you know, he could be he's accomplished everything in the game. You know, he doesn't have to do this. It is kind of another thing to put himself through uh, the challenges of coaching. But he really believes and loves the game. And, and, and he really um, speaks highly of the talent of the American player, which is something that is, is good.
0: Now, I also don't know if our listeners are all aware about what Philadelphia has done with its academy system in terms of the, the specifics what does your academy do that few or no other MLS clubs are doing with theirs?
2: So our school separates us uh, the most, I think, from every everywhere. Um, it, it you know a lot of times when when people think about you know um, the school, everybody's brain goes to the IMG Academy. Uh, what what was the, the the Marcus and the Landon Donovan, and um, they they got sent to the high school that was local down there. Um, I guess you could call it school, but I, I don't know how much uh, hours and homework they were doing. because uh, Not the most we,
0: challenging academic environment from, from what I heard. It didn't seem like it. Uh, and, and so what we've
2: done now is um, we have the headmaster, Nuha, who is incredible. Uh, the, the focus on teaching these kids real life skills. Um, you walk around and take a tour of the school and the campus and just the environment that they've created there. Yes, there's great talented players, but talk about getting prepared for the rest of your life and the real stuff that I certainly didn't uh, didn't have when I was a kid. Um, so so we're more than just a a a soccer club. Um, I think that the, the school itself is the biggest thing that separates us from every academy. And some will say sure, they, they have a school or they send kids to school. Um, but I challenge anyone to come visit and, and the environment that they've created there um, is, is better than any in the league. I, I know that for a fact. And then also the work that Tommy Wilson does in the Academy, uh, is special. Um, so if anyone's in the Philly area, come take a tour of that, that school. Um, and it's a real tool that separates us. And it's so powerful uh, from the rest of, um, from the rest of MLS, certainly, and, and honestly in the country. Um, look, all, all these kids aren't going to turn pro. They're not all going to get to play in Subaru park, unfortunately. Um, but I can assure you that the ones that don't are prepared to play uh, in college. They might play uh, in the USL or whatever it might be, but they will be prepared in life to do things that um, you know will, will make them great people. Uh, and they'll run companies, and they'll be leaders, and they'll be winners. So um, that part is is really, really valuable and special. I mean, you should see these kids. They get up, twelve-year-olds get up and, and and can run meetings and can speak in front of adults and and, and be confident and and you know decisive it's, it's incredible to watch um, but the, we truly have a special thing there
0: so you're still a young guy um you're what 41 41 man yeah don't feel young it's soccer age <laughs> <laughs> but you're you're now the second longest tenured head coach in mls and i'm wondering does it feel like to you that you're the second longest tenured head coach in mls
2: Yeah, you know, I won't bore you with my entire story, but, uh, you know, I I did start in the academy. I was 34 years old when I got named the head coach, came into the job as an assistant um, and and came into the job in a way you don't want to because John Hackworth had to get had had to get fired, which is always challenging. But I had an opportunity to run with it. Um, They asked me if I wanted to be the head coach and the interim basis of my hometown team. Uh, I know now I was not even close to ready to do it, but I wasn't saying no. So um during the process I think I've learned each and every year um you know the one thing I would say is we've had incremental gains the last five seasons our point totals haven't gone you know up 15 points or anything but they've gotten better every year which is something that we take pride on in and uh yeah I've learned along the way uh and, and, you know I, I still go back to, to people you know very well um and I was I've been lucky in my soccer journey you know I, I was fortunate enough to get drafted by. Uh, Bob Bradley and thrown into that locker room with Jesse Marsh, who's a close friend uh, with Chris Armas, with CJ Brown, with Zach Thornton, with Ante Razov. I mean, there's, Josh Wolf was in the locker room. There's 15 players that are now head coaches or assistant coaches in this league. So it's an incredible list and I feel bad. I probably left a few out, but um, I didn't realize it till my second season with Bob that I wanted to be a coach. That was because the environment was such that we challenge each other every day um, you know, you saw the game as a coach and I was only 21 or 22 years old at the time, but I, I knew that I wanted to do this afterwards. So, uh, long winded way of saying if, if the Tampa Bay mutiny it drafted me, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I don't know if I would have had this, um, this mindset and, and it, it comes down to. Um, The environment Bob created there, um, you know, and the people that were in in the locker room and the relationships. And, you know, we can talk about tactics. You can talk about formations. You can talk about the need for talented players all you want. And those things are important. But um, what I've learned and what I've seen at at all clubs in the world, the best ones, just seeing Jesse in Salzburg uh, recently, Uh, the ones that have real relationships with their players and their staff and, and and are good human beings and and try to demand the most out of each other and hold each other accountable um, and and put an arm around each other and have fun and have a beer every once in a while too. um, That stuff matters more than anything. So it comes down to relationships. Uh, I don't care what anybody says. (laughs) That is the most important thing in in sports uh, and in coaching uh, really having real relationships with people uh, and that, that trust over time. Sorry for the long answer,
0: buddy. <laughs> no, don't be sorry for any of this. It's great. I mean, it, it's interesting because you are part of this Bob Bradley coaching tree. I'm certainly not part of Bob's coaching tree, but I'm part of the vicinity around it because I covered yeah. his team with Jesse on it back in like 1992, 93 yeah. and, and when I was a college yeah. student.
2: Andre Paris. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and And I'm wondering, like in what ways do you think you're sort of most similar to, to Bob's approach and in what ways are you sort of maybe different from Bob? Yeah,
2: that's a great question. So look, Bob, Jesse, myself, we're, we we, we all want to win first and foremost. We're all very competitive. Um, you know, Bob is probably the most competitive, uh, guy I've ever been around. At least I thought when I was young and I was a player. Um, and then I met Jesse and Jesse was probably more competitive, you know? So again, it's like this, um, this desire to win this desire to, um, get the most out of people. I would say that the two of them are probably, it's something I need to work on. They're, they're, they're okay with confrontation. They're, they're better with it. I'll just say, uh, they'll call <laughs> things how they are. And, and, uh, I've I'm, experienced uh, that. Yeah. That?
0: <laughs> I've experienced that.
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. So again, that's a great quality to have. It's something that I need to, to work on and improve on. And, you know, Bob has done so much in the game, uh, everywhere he's gone. Uh, he's been a winner. Um, and he's at a point now where he has seen it all and he's going to speak his mind. And and he's, he's in a lot of ways uh, he's a genius. You know, he, he really is. Um, And he's a guy that uh, I looked up to, and I was lucky to have the the short time that I had with him in Chicago. Um, Jesse was a teammate of mine, carpool roommate. You know, we grew up together um, to see him work now in in Salzburg and have success and be so brave to take on that challenge and and, and thrive, um, you know, just even going out to dinner with them and, and, and him embracing and speaking the language to the people in the city. Um, what Bob and him did, uh, they, they kind of are trailblazers. They're, they're, they're brave. Uh, they're setting a, a new standard for the American coach. Um, they're taking risks, they're making mistakes. They they're learning from them and they're getting better each and every day. So I have nothing but the most uh, respect for those two. Um, and, and yeah, there's no, nothing better to learn as a coach, you know, with similar philosophies now to especially Jesse and, and Red Bull, Um, Yeah, nothing better than having a beer together at two in the morning in a hotel lobby and and arguing over napkins. And he's teaching (laughs) me different things on how uh, your wide midfielders and a diamond can cover space. It's just I'm lucky. I'm lucky to have have met the two of them Uh, and, you know, trying to make my own own pathway now. Um, So we're all different. Uh, I think we all have uh, different personalities, um, but we all have a real value on on family first. Um, and, and I'll have a love of, of soccer and growing the game in this country.
0: One thing that strikes me about you and your coaching career is you've had to earn all of this longevity that you've had with the union. You were an interim coach. You had to earn losing the interim tag. Yeah. You were on pretty thin ice ahead of 2019. Sure. You had a, a one-year contract, yeah. and then you earned another two-year deal. How has all this been for you to experience that and and persevere and and now – succeed?
2: Yeah, I think for all young coaches, I think the, the best thing they can do, um, it, I think it's a difficult jump to get thrown right into the pro. So I was very lucky to get the academy opportunity and, and to, to try things with young players who are soak things up so quickly like sponges and you could make mistakes and I could run sessions that maybe failed, you know, but it was okay. Uh, ultimately, then getting the assistant job, um, you know, and, and, and like you said, trying to fight and prove my worth uh, to the club. Um, it took time for sure. Uh, I, ha- I had the unique opportunity to work with, gosh, three or four different sporting directors, um, and and three or four. Some people would see that as a, you know, gosh, coach usually don't survive. Uh, sporting director changes. I've survived three of them, so at least it made me feel like I can do something right, or I can connect and work with people. Um, and I, and some people would see that as difficult. I actually flipped it the other way around, and I said, gosh, how lucky am I to work with um, three guys that see the game completely different, you know, completely different, uh, and, and that's not a bad thing. So, you know, you learn from Ernie Stewart and, and, and how he valued having the ball and possession in certain moments of the field, uh, and then Ernst, who, who would prefer to have uh, the other team have the ball and counterpress and, 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 and make it difficult on the opponent. Uh, so, again, I, I'm, I'm fortunate to have, have worked with some really smart, intelligent people in the game, uh, and I, I see it as, as opportunity to learn and grow uh, and try to get better rather than you know, this difficult task of, you know, one year contract every year. And that is challenging, but um, it makes you fight and it makes you uh, always be on your toes. I think it's a little bit um, emblematic of the the city that that I'm in as well. You know, it's an underdog kind of little brother to New York kind of mentality that sometimes we, we used to have in Philadelphia, but now we're actually a pretty darn good city ourselves. You know what I mean? So I think my coaching uh, career has kind of gone in that same trajectory.
0: I mean, yeah, I was going to say, you are a Philadelphia guy, born and bred. You're from there. You went to college there. You coached there. Yeah. What does someone who's a Philadelphia guy, what what, what does that mean to you? And, and is there any aspect of that in sort of the Philadelphia soccer style, I guess?
2: Yeah. No, I mean, it used to mean... Yeah, 15 20 years ago it means you could fight <laughs> but now, now it's I, I mean if you actually come come to philly uh the, the culture the the people uh, the restaurants the the art scene there's so many cool things happening now uh the real estate market is is thriving it, it's it's a place where even you know my new york friends don't like to say it out loud but when they come they're like man this city's amazing it's, it's full of life so um, it's grown you know I think it's improved and grown uh, much like the Philadelphia Union has kind of through the years as well so um, I love Philadelphia uh, it feels a little bit like I have a little more weight and pressure on on me being from here because I don't want to let people down you know you, you really want to come through for them and and get the club that first trophy so it's something that uh, I'm proud and, and fortunate to coach in my hometown city um, I'm gonna do it the best I can for as long as I can Um when the time's right, I, I'll probably have another challenge in, in some way, shape or form, uh, maybe following Bob and, and, and Jesse's footsteps and trying overseas at some point if I'm fortunate enough to do that. Uh, but uh, I'm going to do everything I can in my power to enjoy every day, try to make these young players better uh, in training, um, you know, and, and, and make the club proud.
0: Jim Curtin is the head coach of the Philadelphia Union. They are in a battle for the MLS Supporters' Shield, currently number two. They play Monday night against Bruce Arena's New England Revolution. Jim, thanks so much for coming on the show.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Grant. Great time. Good talking to
0: you. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Jim Curtin as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.